Good evening. We are um, in Romans 12 tonight, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I wanted to start this evening, um, and, and my, so my name is Greg Tonkinson. Um, if you haven't been here uh, in a while, and occasionally when Lynn's out, I'll step in and, and help out, and I love doing this. Um, and I want to start out tonight, guys, by, I guess, asking a question. Let's see if we can answer this. We have some mic runners, but for this particular uh, little assignment, um, you can just shout out answers. I want us to answer this question collectively as we begin Romans 12 tonight. And the question is this, what would be different in society if all of society followed God's laws as written in the Bible? So hang on. And I want to address that from this position, which is, you realize that the majority of the Bible is written post-fall, right? Like 99.5% of it, with the exception of the first three chapters of Genesis, is written after Adam and Eve sinned. So let's take it from that perspective. We're not talking about utopian. We're talking about if all of society, to the best of our ability, followed God's laws as we read them in the scriptures, what would be different about society today? Does that make sense? So just shout out some things. Let's see if we can generate somewhat of a list. Um, there'd be more peace. Okay, hang on. So we have more families would be staying together. Because you realize that if we, if we kind of listen to God a little bit more closely, if society did as a whole, irreconcilable differences would go way down on the reason we're getting divorced. We, we would work a little harder if we, if, if, if we were truly in it for following God's commands. Okay, what else? Okay, one at a time. Our children would be safe. How many of you grew up with not locking the doors, windows wide open, neighbor comes over in the morning, hey, you know your garage was open all night. Oh, well. Are there still towns like that? <laughs> Where? Kansas, Iowa, Montana. Like six people live in those states. I, I, was, in, I was in Kansas uh, a couple of years ago. My, um, uh, some of my relatives live in there, farmland, wheat in Kansas. And uh, that's what happens. You get, out of the, you get out of the truck, you throw the keys in the, in the front seat so that you don't lose them. But you're not afraid someone's going to steal your truck. Doors wide open, lock, you know, locksmiths are out of business in, in Wheaton, Kansas. Amazing. Safety, safety all around the world. You could travel anywhere, no terrorism. What else? Less death. I'm sorry? Less death. Less death. Meaning, can I ask you what, what you think you mean by that? Good, less people would be drunk, resulting in less car crashes killing people. Absolutely. There'd be more brotherly love. Uh, Super Tuesday across the aisle, there'd be more brotherly love. Less financial debt. Nineteen trillion and counting. We would know how, we would, we, can you imagine walking into a store or onto a car lot or into some, you know, where they're selling product 
and, and you wouldn't be afraid of getting swindled because they would, they would approach you with a fair deal and if you had the money, their, their, their pitch would be, listen, you can't buy this unless you have the money. Like no upselling. Be amazing society to live in. What else? I'm sorry? One more time. Fearness. Fairness, thank you. We would be fair to one another. How would the education system change, I wonder? My teacher's in the room. Oh, I'll tell you. The, the Bible would be in the classroom. There'd be no such thing as Christian education because all education would be through a biblical worldview. More respect. You know, in the LA, I don't know if I have a picture of this somewhere. Um, I thought I saved one. Uh, maybe I didn't. In the L, oh yeah, here it is. Look at this. This was in February 15th, I think. Sometime, February 15th or 16th. This is the LA Times. They asked teachers, the title is, Why Veteran Teachers Aren't Surprised Young People Are Shunning the Profession. And then I just, I bulleted out a couple of stories. On the left-hand side, there a seven-year-old, she continues, teacher telling this story, is the daughter of a woman in and out of rehab who has taught her child that she should never obey the rules. So, the child refuses to work, lies on the floor, and screams, bullies classmates, and uses profanity that it'll make a truck driver blush. At seven. Over down the top right, one teacher notes the straw that broke the camel's back, he said, was a boy who stubbornly refused to stop playing games on his smartphone in class. The teacher sent the student to the principal's office, but the student returned shortly thereafter with a readmission note and a sneer. Just kind of where we're at. Disrespect. So we would have a fewer amount of that. Anything else? No what? No weather problems. Okay. Equality across the board. Starvation and, and poverty. Uh, I'm not sure it'd be eradicated, but certainly would we be dealing with it in a, in a much faster clip? Media content. I mean, hang, let me just hang on to this for just a second here. Did you see the Oscars? Um, did you see what people were wearing at the Oscars? It, this whole, the whole media would be just reshifted into probably little to no ratings. Maybe two ratings, maybe like, you know, good movie, bad movie, but not R, NC-17, really NC-17. Nobody really should watch this, but we know people will, so that's why we're making it. I mean, it would be down to, you know, wholesome type. You, you would learn a lot from media. Uh, happiness, there'd be more happy people in the world. Less depression. Listen, pharmaceutical industry would be not what it is today. Anxiety, stress, depression, medicines, just eradicated. Nearly, almost all. Incredible. Churches, you have to build more. One more time. More godly conversations around the dinner table, in the office. <laughs> Again, back to Iowa and Kansas. Stores would be closed on Sunday. NFL would have to change their schedule because we'd all be in church on Sunday. So... And we wouldn't be checking our phones in church on Sunday to see what the score is. We actually care that we're here. 
Can I tell you one? I don't know if I ever told you this. Where was I sitting? I was sitting right over here, gentleman in the hat, sitting right here. Maybe it was vice versa, I can't remember. Uh, teen, sleeping. And I just thought, for the love of everything that's good, this guy up here is like he's working. Like if you work part-time at Subway or in and out like, like, you know, I don't come to your restaurant and just sleep. This guy's working up here and he's teaching the word of God. Like, just crashed out. There'd probably be fewer people like that. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Yeah. I repeated My, something I heard over Sure, sure, sure. A young man has some excellent wisdom over here. He said there would be no Fs in school, quote there, unquote, I, and no bullies. So I just thought those were worthy of repeating. There'd be no bullies, and I didn't hear the first part. No F words. No F words in, in yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Two different planes. <laughs> There would be neither of either of those. Yeah, speaking of education, like I just thought, you know, laziness would kind of take a different role predominantly now in, in the classroom. People would actually like show up with their notebooks open and willing to learn. Parents would pay much more attention to their child's education, be invested in their kids because that's what the Bible tells us to do and society would adhere to the, to the, to the Bible and so we would actually do that. We'd come up with less excuses not to be engaged with our kids at home. Um, here's why I asked that, guys. You've got justification, sanctification, glorification. I'm going to argue that there's two of these that we don't have a whole lot of control over, but one we have a great deal of control over. And the interesting thing is, when I ask that question, we start to fantasize, boy, what would life be like if society would just adhere to God's rules? And it's almost like we look at society and say, if you would just adhere to God's rules, look how much better life would be for all of us. And while that's true, do you realize that that list we just generated applies to you today as a Christian? The list, we, and I wasn't trying to bait and switch there, the list we just generated, you're not free to not do just because the rest of society's not doing it. In other words, the kind of the, you know, let me reveal my cards tonight. We just created a list for ourselves. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing against the list that we just created? That was for society, ideally, if all of society followed God's laws. But it's certainly for the church because we do follow God's laws. So how are you doing? We didn't even talk about a reduction in pornography. You know, that's probably the biggest market today. That's a supply-demand market. Like if there's one thing that shouts capitalism, it's pornography. Pornography makers, guys, almost every interview that I've ever read about them say the same thing. If you'll stop buying, we'll stop making. You just don't stop buying. So we got to keep churning it out. That would be eradicated. Adultery would kind of be a foregone conclusion or, or foregone thought. Immorality would be dealt with. 
So let's, let's circle the wagons here, can we, tonight, and pull it inside the church. Is it fair for me to create a list for us? The world, the world has, a, has, a, has, has a justifiable argument to say to me, well, that's, you know, you can do all your little fun thinking all you want, Greg. We don't adhere to God's law. So, so while it'd be nice, we don't. And we admit we don't. But you guys, they say to the church, you admit you do. So what gives? Um, most people don't become believers because their, their, their conversation ends with this. Um, I don't want to be what you are. Now that's got two meanings to it. I would love it to mean you guys are so radical for your Jesus, your lives have clearly been changed by your Jesus. He definitely is the Lord of your life. I can see that in every decision you make. I don't want Jesus to be my Lord. So the reason I'm rejecting Christianity is because I don't want to look like you. Because you're so radically different from culture. And I love culture. Wouldn't that be great if people rejected Christianity for that reason? But maybe is it true that the reason they're rejecting Christianity is because they say, I don't want to be like you. Friend, you're no different than me. Except you pay a lot of money to the church and you go every Sunday. But your life looks no different than my life. And therefore, you claim that Jesus is the Lord of your life, but because there's little to no change, I don't want to go through the hassle. Because it just seems just like that, a hassle, but nothing more. Therefore, I reject Christianity. Does that make sense? Wouldn't it be great if people rejected the gospel because you're living such a radical life They've, they've processed all of that and they've concluded, I don't want to do that. You've clearly demonstrated to me to live like a believer should live, you have to die to self and give your life over to Jesus. I just don't want to do that. Fair enough. We'll all stand before God on judgment day. But you've, you've made your decision. You've, you're lying in that bed. But I get why you're doing it. I just don't think that's what they're saying to many of us. Certainly not to me. The, the, the words hypocrisy come up, two-faced, walking on both sides, lukewarm. That's the terms people are using for Christians today. It's interesting because Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I'm going to go a different route. So turn, take, turn your Bibles to, to, to Romans chapter 12. And guys, this is easy to fall into because of even like what we sang tonight. Do you know the first song we sang? Can anyone quote it back to us? His name was Glory to God. Excuse me. You know the, the uh, bridge? Right, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. So take, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. 
And I think, I didn't count, I think David's saying that three times at least, four times. So it's easy to say, isn't it? You realize what you said, right? God, take my life. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Now, now, wouldn't songs, wouldn't Christian songs be interesting if like before we sang every song, David uh, Martinez or David up here, or some, somebody said, okay, before we sing the song, we're about to sing the song. Let me show you the lyrics. Here's the lyrics, all of them. If you can't sing that and mean it, don't sing. So, so take a look, you know, playing in the background, cool jazz beat. I love our band. They're so hip. Little drumming while we're reading. And then he starts playing. Then David starts playing. How many of us do you think, honestly, how, how, many, how many out of the 1,200 that sit in this room times, what, four every Sunday, how many of us would sing with our, you know, hearts and hands and how many of us would just pass? Be pretty convicting, wouldn't it? We just did it tonight. And because we don't like hold everyone's feet to the fire, we just get into the, into the routine of singing stuff like that. I just want to, I just, do I really know that what I'm singing and do I really believe it? Take my life and let it be God all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. Or glory to God forever. Paul says this, he says, and he picks it up, let me just say, my belief, I believe that he, he inserted 9, 10, and 11. I think 8 better connects with 12 than 11 does, but he says, I urge you, therefore, based on everything we've just talked about, let's just say from chapters 1 to 11, based on everything we've just talked about, I get to do something now as your um, church planter, as your founder, I get to do something and as I get to beg you. I get to urge you. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to step out and take a risk right here. That's what I think Paul's saying in verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, surrender, yield, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Speaking to a first century audience, they clearly would have got that imagery, wouldn't they? Present yourselves, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Why do you think Paul went that route? Why did he say, do you think, to the church at Rome, I urge you, I'm begging you, yield, surrender, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Why wouldn't he just say something like, um, give your heart to God. Um, yield to God uh, your thought life. Why would Paul go the route of climb onto the altar, basically, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice? Why did he use that language, would you guess? Let's get some mics out here. You, I'm going to put these guys to work here, if you don't mind. Right, right down here, I think. And then right over here. Hands up. Just give, raise your hands. These great young men will come over. Okay, we'll take this one first, and then we'll bounce right over here. 
Uh, we were asked to uh, die of ourselves every day, die to the flesh, the temptations of the flesh. So that's why he's calling it a, a physical sacrifice. Okay, so we're asked to die to our flesh every day. Okay, and, then, and the word there, the Greek word, sarx, S-A-R-X. Die to your flesh every day. That word has, has several meanings in the Bible. One is your actual flesh. The other is more of a... Um, a picture of your flesh, who you are. And Paul says to die to that. And then he says here though, present your bodies. And, and what he means here guys is your physical bodies. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Why do you think he said that? Yeah. Are still not um, resurrected and still have a lot of issues and is the hardest part to keep from sinning. Okay, so our, it's hard to keep our bodies from sinning? Absolutely, right here. Our bodies are visible. To our bodies are visible. Other people. I'm sorry? To other people. Our bodies are visible to other people. And they're watching. And people are watching our bodies. Yep, you're, you're kind of all saying the same thing. Right, right here, real quick. Run, 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 run. It's like the price is right. There you go. Isn't it sort of like a, like a sacrifice from the Old Testament where you're kind of a picture of that, that you're, but we're, he's saying our living bodies, that we're to go on living, but kind of in a... Well, yeah, in a everyone's like right here. What is Paul equating you to? No, he's not equating you to a temple. What is he equating you to? An animal sacrifice. Guys, he's equating you to a sheep here or a lamb or a bull. And he's saying, he wants to get the church at Rome to get the image. He's saying, in the old days, we would carry the lamb up to the altar and lay it on the altar unwillingly. Lamb smells blood. You know, they see, the, they see where this is headed. They're digging in. Not too many were like, oh, what's happening? But Paul says to you and to me, I want you willingly to climb up on the altar. And when you do that, I want you to present your bodies up here as a living and holy sacrifice. Why? What, what do our bodies house? Everything. Your soul, your spirit, your flesh, your mind, everything. So Paul gives us this image, take my life and let it be, all for you and for your glory, God. I'm climbing up on the altar to present to you my body as a living and holy sacrifice. Why living? I think, recall Romans 6. What did Lynn talk to you about in Romans 6 about what happened to you when you became a believer? You went from death to life. You were baptized and raised again in Him. Yeah. I, I almost see it as an imagery of um, us being like Jesus in the ultimate sacrifice that He did, do the same thing with our own bodies, willingly going to the cross yeah. for the rest of us. Absolutely. And the difference between Jesus and the sacrificial lambs that atoned for our sins in the Old Testament and what Paul is asking you and I to do is we get to do it over and over and over and over again. Continually. 
Whereas they only had to do it once. Because when they went to the altar, when they went to the cross, they were to die. And, and Jesus rose again. But he's asking us as living sacrifices every day, wake up and present your bodies to me as a living and holy sacrifice. Perfect, uh, pleasing God, acceptable in his sight every day. Wouldn't that, guys, and this is why. Do you know when you and I do that, do you know what we're doing, what we're practicing? He says it right here, but what are we practicing when you do that? Starts with a W. Worship. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You mean, Greg, that, that like what we did here the first like 15 minutes, that's worship. Like we're not worshiping right now. Are, are you telling me I got to get up and play the guitar and sing? No. Worship is the believer's response of all that he or she is, mind, body, will, and emotions to all that God is and says and does. That's what worship is. You get up every morning and you say to God, I am alive in Jesus today, God. Thank you for saving me. I'm alive in Christ today. I've been raised up in the heavenlies with him, seated in the heavenlies with him. My job in sanctification here, the lane I'm living in right now, is to present to you my body today as a living and holy sacrifice. My body houses my soul, my spirit, my flesh, my mind. I want all of those things, God, all I am. Take my life and let it be, all to you and for your glory. Whatever you want to do with me today, God, let's go. And God says to the angels up in heaven, she just worshiped me. He just worshiped me. No music. Can you imagine if every believer started his or her day like that? Guys, then that list we just created 15 minutes ago becomes a reality. Not some fantasy. It becomes a reality. If, if we would do that. So then he gives us a clue on how to do it. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't, 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 don't look like the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does my mind get transformed? Just shout it out. The word of God. How does your mind get transformed? The Word of God. Well, it's the Word of God, Greg, plus uh, singing. It's the Word of God plus prayer. It's the Word of God plus fellowship. It's the Word of God plus tithing. It's the Word of God plus, I don't care what you add to it, honestly. You want to add a bunch of pluses to it and fill up your schedule? That's fine with me. But isn't that, that's just so not what we do, is it? It's well, here's how I transform my, renew my mind, Greg. I pray. I sing. I tithe. Um, I fellowship. I go to potlucks. I serve. What about reading the Word of God? Well, I do all these other things. I'm pretty busy. What do you expect? 
I expect you to read the word of God. And then if you have time to do these other things, great, go do them. Guys, this, this is how you renew your mind. Time and time and time and time again. I had a student once tell me, um, and, and I appreciate the honesty, I really do. We were talking about studying God's word and the student said, um, you know what, Tonk, I, um, I'll be honest with you. I would rather experience God than read his word for 30 minutes, given the choice. And I thought, I really appreciate that answer because that's indicative of your generation, by the way. Because if I could get into his heart and his mind, I think what he was saying is, is this is hard. This is a big book. This doesn't have any pictures. This has people in places I'm not familiar with and now I need to do some studying. This confuses me. This makes my brain hurt. So, that's one option. I get to experience God, whatever that means to him. And I really didn't have to do anything. Just be available and receive his experience. Half hour, which one would I choose? He said, I'd choose this every time. Okay, that's fine. Can I show you a couple of statistics, if you wouldn't mind? Um, this is what the later, latest Barner research says. Almost 60% of teens without a Christian, with a Christian background had or have dropped out of attending church after going regularly. Um, Scott McConnell of Lifeway Research says more than two-thirds of young adults who attend a Protestant church for at least a year in high school will stop attending church regularly for at least a year between ages 18 and 22. More than two-thirds. Uh, probably the um, resident experts in millennials would be Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton. They wrote Soul Searching and um, they did the National Youth Study one of the more popular ones done in 2005, they said this, they said, we found very few teens from any religious background who are able to articulate well their religious beliefs and explain how those beliefs connect to the rest of their lives. They found very few. Mike Napa from the Jesus Survey said this, the absolute best thing you can do for your Christian teen is to help them grow confident in the trustworthiness of scripture. Teens who believe the Bible is true are also more likely to embrace authentic Christian beliefs. In other words, he married the two concepts. Teens who read the Bible believe Orthodox Christianity. They just go hand in hand. Take one part out, you've got problems. Smith and Denton also said this. Listen to this. The factors involved in maintaining an Orthodox faith and a biblical worldview, including attending religious services, praying regularly, reading scripture, and having an active faith appeared only in 8% of all American youth. When they added those four, I think there's four factors up there, when they took all of, not, not separated them, but when they put them all together, and you would admit, I would admit, guys, let's admit, you need all four of those things. To, to have a healthy Christian life, you need all four of those things are like mandatory. He, when he combined all four of them and asked American youth, how are we doing? 8% said, I'm check, check the box, I'm doing those things. 8%. Um, about 75%, they also go on to say, of teens who see themselves as religious also see their beliefs as somewhat or very similar to their parents with conservative Protestant, mainline Protestants ranking just behind Mormons. Basically what they're saying here, 77% of all attending teens said that they expect at age 25 to attend the same kind of congregation they attend now. What Smith and Denton were saying is simply this. 
you as an adult, for most of us in here, your faith matters. Not just for you. It matters to your kids. There was a 35-year longitudinal study done from 1970 to 2005 where they looked at family units. And in 2005, they made this conclusion. We don't know much else, but we know this. Faith is passed down from generation to generation. We know that to be true. Concretely, we know that to be true. From parent to child, to parent to child, to parent to child, children embrace their parents' faith, their parents' religious beliefs. Whatever their parents are doing, kids are likely to end up doing what their parents did. In other words, this was their big conclusion was this. You will get what you are. That was their conclusion. You will get what you are. So, if you're a casual believer, if you're dabbling in the world, why would you expect anything different from your kid? Conversely, if kids see mom and dad or mom or dad waking up and spending time with God, talking about God at the dinner table, bringing them to church no matter what, tithing regularly, living a good life, healthy life, if they see mom and or dad, both of them primarily, preferably doing that, your chances of them doing that, if you want them to do that, go through the roof. That's, that's like, that's known, guys. That's not guesswork. That's what research over and over and over again is telling us. You will get what you are. So I gotta ask, we gotta come uh, kind of like, let's just sit by the fire kind of a little closer tonight. How are we doing? Well, my kids, well, you know, they don't, they don't understand what I've been through. Probably not. But I'm not sure God gives us an out because of that. How much more powerful would your story be if my kids don't know what I've been through and I'm still showing up every week and I'm still reading the scriptures and I still trust in God and I still love him to death and one day they will understand what I've been through and maybe just maybe the appreciation level of my kids will go through the roof because God may have them in store for some tough times and I want them to know you can persevere through the tough times. Are you, are you ready to have a conversation with your kids about Revelation 3 and the church at Laodicea and how lukewarm they are without your kid looking at you saying, I don't know, mom, it kind of looks like you. I don't know, dad, I don't know why we're studying this because you kind of look like that. Or do we just avoid those passages altogether? You will get what you are. Now guys, I think for me, that's encouraging. That's not defeat. I don't feel defeated by that. I feel encouraged by that. But I've got to own it, right? I've got to, I've, I'm not looking for everyone else to help me. If you want to come along and help my kids spiritually, that's fine. But I'm the primary teacher of my kids spiritually. And I'm going to own that as best as I can, primarily through modeling. Kids are sponges. They pick up on everything. When's the last time you had your kid call you out on something that you forgot about? They, they, they don't forget. They remember everything. They, you don't think they're watching you. They're watching you. And when they see you praying, when you don't think they're watching, they pick up on that. When they see you turning on Caleb or Air One, when you have, could have turned on whatever, they pick up on that. 
You'll get what you are. Okay? Why is that important? Because of this, guys. Back to Romans 12. Oh, let me just, could I just share one more thing? I just found this fascinating. Um, Napa did this survey and he asked, I think, 845 Christian teens, Christian teens, a bunch of questions, 100 questions or so, one right after the other. One question was, see the red up there? The Bible is 100% accurate, historically, factually, theologically, and therefore completely trustworthy about what it says about Jesus. That was one of the statements they had to disagree, strongly disagree, disagree, somewhat agree, somewhat, or, yeah, somewhat agree, agree, strongly agree. Like five options. 86% when they read that statement, somewhat or strongly agreed. The very next statement on the survey, the Bible, though generally accurate, contains some widely acknowledged errors, can't believe completely trusting in everything it says about Jesus. 36% somewhat or strongly agreed. Now, I think the laugh is because she did the math. It doesn't add up. Some of the 86%, guys, by math, by math, some of the 86% had to strongly agree with that statement and strongly agree with the statement below it. And, and part of that, guys, I think is because there is in our, in our postmodern culture today, there's a willingness to reason and live contradictorily to, 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 to life itself, but more importantly to Scripture. Uh, I think personally, I think homosexuality is, is one of the most clear examples of that. I can't tell you. I mean, I, I work at a Christian school. I can't tell you when I get students that come up to me and they, they're honestly heartfelt about this. But the conversation goes something like, I know what the Bible says about homosexuality, Tonka, and, and yet I've got friends or siblings that are homosexual. And at the end of the day, if my brother or sister or friend tells me that they believe God loves them in their lifestyle, I'll, I'm okay with that. And I just need to let you know that. Yeah, but look at all these passages. I, I, I know. They're not disagreeing the passages are there. They're not even disagreeing that God condemns homosexuality, the act of homosexuality. What they've done now, guys, is this, which previous generations, let's admit, we didn't really have to do this. They now have names and faces. And they can't work out the seemingly contradicting um, truth here. And so they side with flesh and bone. And they go to bed at night completely okay with that. Well, guys, just fast forward a few years when they have their own kids. And that kid is struggling with something that the word of God may seem to speak against. Being consistent, they would say to their kid, well, you just got to make the choice you have to make. That's what some of these, some of the research is really telling us. So what's the best thing I can do as a parent, I guess? Um, I've got a model for my kids that God's word is absolutely true 100% of the time. And when I disagree with it, I lose. I can ask God questions, I can talk to God about it, I can question things, but at the end of the day, he wins. I can model that for my kids. Look at verse three real quickly. Paul says this, he says, for though the grace given to me, 
I say, through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God allotted to each a measure of faith. What's Paul saying there in verse three? I say to every man among you, every person among you, every believer, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each measure of faith. What is the issue he's addressing? What, are they, what, what is his concern that some of them are acting like? Would you guess? What's their struggle? Pride. Arrogance. Um, Self-indulgence. Selfishness. For though the grace has been given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Do we struggle like, with that today? Yeah, over here. I think he wants us to take an honest spiritual inventory of ourselves. Well put. He wants us to search and take an honest inventory of ourselves. And when we come to the other end of that honest, introspective inventory, what do we find? I can't answer that for you. But I agree. I think you should do that. I think I should do that. I think we need to have some gut checks here. Can I share with you a couple more things? Because this is what fascinates me. This, this, man, I love the energy of people younger than us, a lot of us in here. I love their creativity. I love their ingenuity. I love the fact that they're risk takers. I love the fact that they're almost brazen and bold to a, to a fault. Um, can we all admit though some struggles? that you can help your kids with or, or the neighbor's kids or your grandkids or they're kind of coming up under this wave of all that matters is you. Someone labeled this next generation the me generation. Um, this, is, this is what they're up against, okay? The Bible says over 48 times to live with humility. Over four dozen times the Bible speaks to you and to me about living with humility. Pride comes before the fall, et cetera, et cetera, right? With that said, there was a survey done with nine million American college freshmen, and they said this. They are more likely than ever to call themselves gifted and driven to succeed, even though their test scores and time spent studying are decreasing. You see, the, see the, the, what's happening here? I don't care what the numbers say, I'm gonna succeed in life. You know why that thought is prevalent in society today? Take a guess. Why when the numbers say to, 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 to Jane over here, you haven't studied, you failed, and if you continue to fail, colleges won't accept you. They don't want a kid that doesn't study. Why does Jane look at the information but still say, I don't care? because I'm good and, you know, gosh, gosh Donna, I like myself kind of a thing. Like, why, why does she look in the mirror and do that? Why does she disregard reality? What do you think? Because she was brought up that way. Um, good, everyone gets a trophy. Yeah, everyone's a winner.
Okay, so I want my kids to do better than I did and have more than I have. Yep. They're entitled. I'm sorry? They are entitled. Who does the entitling? We do. We do! Dr. Twen said this, Jen Me simply takes it for granted that we should all feel good about ourselves. We're all special. We all deserve to follow our dreams. Jen Me is straightforward and unapologetic about their focus. I love this. Look at the bottom of this. In 1976, a survey was given and 56% of the people on the survey said, I think I'm above, above average in intelligence. In 2012, that number jumped 11%. The problem is, is that it was a standardized test and the numbers were the same in 76 and 2012. 76, 2012, it jumped 11%. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm good. I think I'm real above average, actually. But the test scores said, no, you're not. You're, you're the same. Because we think more highly of ourselves. Um, this is why it's happening, right, guys? It's because of narcissism. Look, look at these. Twins wrote this book. I love this. Five keys, focus on self-admiration, check. Child-centered parenting, oh my gosh, check. Celebrity glorification and media, check. The attention-seeking promoted on the internet, check. Probably the only one that we might argue is easy credit. Four out of the five, it's this, guys, honestly. And I don't, you know, in 2013, <laughs> just think about this, though, guys. In 2013, that word from 2012 to 2013, that word increased in frequency 17,000% in one year. So much so that Oxford caved. They couldn't do anything about it. They had to give it word of the year. 17,000% in one year, the frequency. Not all the 880 billion photos taken in 2014 were selfies, but quite a few were. You see this? You know what these have in common? No, no, no. What do these have in common? I mean, you're all right, but what? They're funeral selfies. See the word, see up top? I don't know if you can see it up top real clearly. These are all people going to or at a funeral. Now, guys, again, I just want to draw close here because it may be a little hard to see here. The girl on the left there, she says this. After all of the ats and, you know, quote, uh, um, naming people, her, her statement is this. Love my hair today. Hate why I'm dressed up. Hashtag funeral. The one on the far right, the girl posing in front of the mirror says this. Funeral dress for, from today. Got goodbye, great Uncle John. May you rest in peace. We'll never forget you. Get, get, can we get a mic, please? Just want everyone to hear. You're good. You're good. You're good. Don't don't trip. Uh, we were talking the other day. There was a story. I think it came out last week, um, and it was talking about why millennials don't eat cereal. Did you hear about this? No, I did not. We want to take a guess why they don't eat cereal. And it was actually it was proven fact. I mean, they they metered it. I have no idea. It's because they were too lazy to rinse out the bowl. It's inconvenient to get a bowl. And they, and they found out that they spent more time doing selfies, putting it on Snapchat, on Twitter, and things yeah, like sure. that, 
but again, it's, it, it, I think, uh, you know, we were talking, the wheels fell off someplace. Yeah, right? yeah and, and, and guys, this is not, please, please, please. Because I know every time I bring this up, people leave and, gosh, why don't you stop bashing on millennials? I hope we can delineate here or, or differentiate the difference between bashing on a generation and speaking truth about a generation. And guys, when I say a generation, I'm not kidding. I'm not talking just a few. This is a generation that is biblically illiterate and full-fledged narcissistic. And that's a bad combination when you say to me, I want my kid, when we get kids dropped off at my high school that says, make my kid a great Christian. Well, good luck. Unless you brought with you magic beans as well, I don't know what to tell you. Well, we're not going to make my kid read the Bible. Like, we're not those kind of parents. Like, we're not going to force, you know, them to do things. Um, and we're going to buy them every toy known to man so that they can do stuff like this. But I'll tell you what, by, when they walk across that stage when they're 18, they better love Jesus. Okay. Um, I just don't know how to do it, guys, honestly. I don't know how to do it well or magically. So we got to start making some decisions. And so can I, can I, I'm not talking to the millennial generation tonight. I'm talking to the generation above the millennial generation. You'll get what you are. Your kids will see through it. I promise you. If you're living, albeit imperfectly, according to God's word, your kids will see through all of the stuff that culture's throwing at them. And they'll note the difference. Um, over here, yeah, and then I want to go to uh, verse 6. Go ahead. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I understand what you're saying about our children um, becoming who we are, uh, but what about the kids that go in with a foundation of God is good and then they come out of college? Um, I know specific several uh, people who have had children yeah. um, who've gone into college believing in God and coming out atheists. Because, and, it's, and they went to God's schools. Right. Uh, it's a great question. And please, you know, I hope you hear my um, uh, non, I, I'm using absolutes, but I hope you know I don't mean that, that I can guarantee that. I just, I know, I know based on research, the, your, your odds increase when the church partners with the parents and they both partner with some sort of education that has a biblical worldview, that your kid has a tremendous chance of navigating his or, way, his or her way through higher education, where that is just is chock full of um, uh, flaming arrows from the evil one in the form of atheistic professors and you know, immor sexual immorality, and they have, they have a better chance of navigating their way through that. Because statistically, it really does, if they can get through that season, by the time they're about 25, they find their way back into a, a more routine lifestyle, and the church is definitely a part of that. It's that 18 to 25 year, year period, that seven year period, that short of holding their hand every day for those seven years, We've got to set them up for the best chance of success. I don't know of a better way to do it than to model it, bring them to church, 
show them what it's like to be a believer in a tough world and pray my face off. Really, pray my, pray my face off. If you're, it, I don't want to take time to do this, but I would highly encourage you to read Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 is a phenomenal passage because it's a passage where God tells, tells the prophet Ezekiel, hey, tell the nation of Israel, um, they, they use this proverb, um, the children, the, the, parent, the, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And God tells Ezekiel to tell the nation of Israel to stop saying that. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, what, you, see what, you see what's happening there? When you eat sour grapes, you clinch, you know, you get your teeth all set on edge, right? The parents ate the sour grapes. Why are the children's teeth set on edge? Because what's happening in the children's lives in terms of tough times or whatever, who are they blaming? The parents. And God tells Ezekiel to tell Israel no more. No more. Child and parent alike are going to own their own actions. And then he gives three examples, fascinating examples. Godly man has an ungodly son. That ungodly son has a son, and that grandson turns out to be godly. And so he says, listen, there's no guarantee just because you're a godly man you won't have ungodly children. But they're going to own it. He says, actually, the blood is on their head. You do the best you can as a parent, live, living holy sacrifice, stay humble, and they'll have to own their own choices. And just because they're rotten to the core doesn't mean that I won't raise up a godly child underneath them to start possibly a new generation, a new legacy of believers. Fascinating passage. It just, it gives me hope. It sets me free, guys, honestly. It says, God, I'm responsible for raising my kids the best I know how. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4. And then I'm just going to trust you. Okay? One more thing and then we'll call it a night. I don't want to dive into this because um, it's just way too long. But if you pick it up in verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members don't have the same function. So we who are many are all one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I want to encourage you tonight, one of the best things you can do for those around you, if you're single here tonight, if, you, if you've got friends that need to know Jesus or you want to model the Christian life for them, if you have neighbors that need to know this, if you have coworkers, one of the best things you can do is serve out of your gifts. Live out of your gifts that God has given you. That's one of the best things you can do. Here's the kicker on that, guys. It's given by God to you. It's free, and you'll actually like doing it. These are spiritual gifts that you, you're, it's in your DNA as a believer, and God gave them to you, meaning he has purposed in you a certain design to accomplish the edification of the body of Christ that isn't like the person sitting next to you. And here's, what's, here's what I love. Verse 4, we have many members in one body and all the members don't have the same function. And I wrote here my little, you know, little side notes, but we all have the same value. Please, please, please don't ever believe 
because you greet or because you run mics or because you work in children's ministry or you sing up here or teach up here that there's a hierarchy. God gave you those spiritual gifts and he needs you, wants you to use them. The best thing you can do to model the Christian life to someone is live out of your gifts. But that begs a big question. What's the big question? What are my gifts? If it's so vital, he says it here in Romans 12, he says it in 1 Corinthians 12, he says it again in 1 Corinthians 14. Spiritual gifts are a big, big deal, guys. And I would say before very long, if you've been a Christian for for any length of time, you need to have this answered in your life. What are my spiritual gifts? So as we close tonight, and, and, and I wish I had more time for this, Oops. Um, I'm just going to offer these four things. How do I know my spiritual gifts? Pray about it. Ask other people, what do you see in me that I do well? Listen to them. When people tell you, I've never seen someone so uh, merciful. Like you have mercy for everyone. How do you do that? I've never seen someone um, teach so well. I've never seen someone lead so well. I've never seen someone um, get in people's faces like you do. Like you are the truth and love expert. You do it and they actually respond to you. Listen to that. Have your spiritual radar perk up and think maybe they're talking about a spiritual gift that I didn't even know I had. Take a spiritual gift inventory. Online there's a billion of them and they're mostly free. And then finally, probably the best thing, highlight or circle that one, just start serving. You'll know pretty quickly. You know, I thought I'd like working with two-year-olds. I really don't. (laughs) And that's okay. Because you're taking up someone's space that really does like working with two-year-olds. But they can't fit in because you're already in it. Get out and go find something else. But here's the key, guys. Don't miss this. You're all valuable. If, if Bobby turned off my mic right now, we don't have this conversation, at least not easily. But I don't even know if you know Bobby exists back there. He comes here every week on his own dime. How vital is this? If the lights aren't on, we don't have Bible study tonight, right? Stephen's got to be back there letting me do this. All of this takes, someone's got to sing up here. I mean, all this takes place. People serving coffee out there. What are your spiritual gifts? <laughs> they shut me off? Oh, did he come out? Um, figure that out. Lynn's going to come back in a couple weeks. I'm sure he'll dive back into what these gifts are and how to find out more about them. But, okay, let's pray. Jesus, thanks for tonight. Thank you so much that we get to spend time in your word. Father, thank you that your word is infallible, it is inerrant, it is reliable. Thank you that it is our source of knowledge and understanding. Thank you, Father, that it is food to our soul. And God, I pray that we would uh, allow you to take our lives, all of our lives, that we would wake up tomorrow as living in holy sacrifices, acceptable and pleasing to you. And that that would be our spiritual service, our act of worship to you. 
And whatever happens throughout the rest of the day tomorrow, God, we will give you the glory because we know it was purposed by you. We love you, Father. Thanks for this incredible life we get to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great spring break.